Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Hope that you're having a good Tuesday. Uh, We are excited to actually jump into a little bit of a special episode today. So as you guys recall, a few months ago, we were talking about the CAFO Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Phil and I were able to be a part of that in a few different ways. And one of the ways that I was able to participate was actually in uh, doing a workshop with a few of the friends that we have within the community of practice that One Million Home is a part of. And uh, we were able to talk about how do you transition your board and your donor base, right? You know, on Think Orphan, we really want the conversations that we have here when we say, hey, what do you think about orphans? What do you think about orphan care? What do you think about family-based care? You know, we want this to be a conversation. And we don't just want it to be just, you know, you know, only share your personal story, although we love those pieces. We really want this to be a resource, And I was able to have this conversation with a few of our friends, uh, Brent Phillips from Cherish Uganda, Ashley Heiligman from Global Child Advocates, and Spencer Reeves from Child Hope International. You know, all three of these friends and colleagues were on the Think Orphan podcast in the past, and we were able to sit down with them at CAFO Summit in the workshop that, that I was facilitating called Getting Your Board and Donors Off the Fence, right? Um... You know, we were able to have that conversation around what does it look like to, you know, if you're going to transition, can you do that without your board? Can you do that without your donors? Of course not. They're a critical part uh, to, you know, helping the orphanage transform and become something more than that, become something that facilitates family, facilitates community. But you need to bring them along. So we were able to have this conversation um, with Brent, Ashley, and Spencer. And uh, that's what we're going to be getting into today. Um, Just a quick reminder, if you guys uh, are on your computers or on your device, if you go to kfo2022.org front slash live, you can actually get into all the general sessions from KFO. So if you wanted to hear, you know, uh, this is a little bit of a promo, but it's okay because KFO is awesome. You can hear all the opening general sessions. If there was a workshop that you uh, were a we're in uh, or that you wanted to be in, um, you could actually go onto CAFO's website and purchase those. They're only like five bucks a piece. And then um, at least when, as I'm recording this, all the general sessions are free. So um, definitely if you weren't able to be a part of CAFO, there are ways to uh, continue to glean from that as we look forward to next year's summit. Uh, but we're going to get into this conversation um, and, you know, take everything that you're hearing from Brent and Spencer and Ashley, um, if you're considering transitioning to family care, you know, this is, uh, this is, these are the types of people that really kind of pave the way in that regard. So uh, soak up a lot, uh, take this as a resource, and uh, there's not going to be any outro on the other end of it, but I'm really excited to get into this conversation that I was able to have at CAFO Summit 2022 in Atlanta, Georgia, with Brent Phillips, Ashley Heiligman, and Spencer Reeves. Welcome to uh, to this workshop, Getting Your Board and Donors Off the Fence, a conversation about family care. Um, you know, as I was just kind of popping around and kind of talking with a few people as we uh, kind of started to uh, file in, um, there's a lot of reasons why people come to this realization that they want to transition to family care. Um, You've had kids in residential for some time and you've 
done the best that you can and you want the best for the kids. And for whatever reason, there's these changes that, you know, start to come. And uh, some of you guys are here because you have that desire and interest to see kids and family. Um, some of you still might be kind of figuring out, you know, what that looks like and you're starting to engage your stakeholders. And uh, some of you may have already started the transition, which is which is awesome. Um, and some of you maybe don't want your uh, boss or your board to know that you came into this uh, workshop because uh, because they're maybe not on board yet. But uh, whatever brings you here, you're in good company. So. Um, I have a few of my uh, friends and colleagues here from uh, the One Million Home uh, community practice, the community practice that we just facilitate, and um, who have walked this journey um, with their board, with their donor base, and have lived to tell the tale. So I'm excited to just kind of share a little bit about uh, what each of them have done. You know, the board and the donors of your organization, uh, they represent, you know, two very important stakeholders. You can't really do it without them. Um, and yet at the same time, these are the stakeholders that are the most removed from the operation and from seeing these kids on a daily basis. And uh, because of this, they might have some significant misconceptions about what you know switching to family care looks like, um, and maybe they don't even see the point. You know why reintegrate children back into the community? Like you know, aren't we doing a good job? And because of that distance, you know, those misconceptions might uh, might be labor. Um, and yet, at the same time, there has been this movement of orphanages, children's homes that have started to make that transition to family care. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see some emerging lessons learned. We don't have um, a ton, although I'll share a little bit of data that we do have. There's not a ton of quantitative data out there. Right now, a lot of the stuff is more anecdotal. And yet, when you hear about it, um, you know, what does it look like to transition? And you're hearing from, you know, three different countries on three different continents, what this looked like, um, you know, hopefully we can start to see those lessons learned and how they start to emerge. So, um, so that's what we'll be covering today. Um, our hope is that you can confidently and competently engage your board and your donor base uh, so that as you shift to family-based care, um, because you can't do it without them and you shouldn't want to do without them. You know, they, they are important. Um, absolutely. Um, before we hop into some questions, um, and I, in a, in a room this size, it feels weird. We have all these empty tables over here. So there is a text if you have uh, want to ask a question, but honestly, you could also just raise your hand um, and, and we'll just get it that way too. Um, I did mention briefly about some of the data that is out there. And um, as I was talking with Nicole uh, from the CAFO Research Center, um, did want to highlight some resources if you guys are not already familiar. Um, they do have a, a couple resources that CAFO has. One is bringing your donors along on the journey. Um, this was a research that was done by Nicole Wilkie and Amanda Howard. Um, and it does have some interesting stats, um, a, a larger sample size than what you'll hear in kind of our lessons learned in this workshop. But as they surveyed um, uh, several, uh, at least, what was it? It was almost 30 organizations or something. Um, 42 of those organizations reported losing donors during the transition, but 69% reported that they actually gained donors as a result of their transition. And I think that that's kind of one of those things where you always wonder like, well, what if they... What if what if we lose our money? You know, this this isn't just our ministry model. It's been our business model. You know, what if we lose our money? And that does that can happen. And we'll kind of get into that with our panel as well. But there's also increases 
at times. Uh, at least that's what the data is showing from that study. Um, another thing from that report, many organizations reported that they involved their donors from the very beginning of the transition process or very soon after that decision is made. And uh, that has proven to also be an effective way to you know, get them started early. Um, there's another resource, a longer one, um, the Transitioning Donors Workbook, that's also from CAFO, um, where they basically just kind of go through five thematic steps on how to work with your donor base um, during the transition and have some good uh, practices that you guys could tap into there. So you can find those resources online. Again, that's the Transitioning Donors Workbook and then uh, bringing your donors along the journey. Um, on your table, you'll also see a printed resource. Um, so basically what we want to do is not just spend an hour together and just talk about, you know, what this is in this hour. We would like for there to be ways that you guys can be following up, you know, um, so what you'll see there uh, at 1 million home, we do have some digital platforms and podcasting and e-learning, um, that are focused on getting kids into family. Um, so you guys can check those out. Um, each of the panelists have been on our podcast. So you'll see some of those episodes there. We were supposed to be joined by our colleague, Marissa Stam. Unfortunately, she, uh, is in, um, Central Florida and was not able to come up here due to the hurricane, but they do great work in Ethiopia. I would encourage you guys to check out Salamta as well. Um, so those are some resources. So we're gonna um, jump into just some kind of questions. And as we start to go for a little bit, you guys can you know just share with us, uh, raise your hand. We'll get to some questions uh, towards the end of our time together. So um, let's just jump right in. And I'm gonna go um, just a quick introduction. Furthest from me is Spencer Reeves. He's with Child Hope International. Uh, they operate in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And again, all three of these uh, executive directors have run orphanages and were there during the transition. Okay, so, so these are the real people, right? Okay, so Spencer Reeves, Child Hope International in Haiti. Yeah, real people. Give them a good poke, Brent. Uh, Brent Phillips with Cherish Uganda, working in Entebbe, uh, Uganda. And Ashley Heiligman, she is with uh, Global Child Advocates in Mesot, Thailand. So we do, we have... Caribbean, Africa, okay, and Southeast Asia, all right? So we have a good swath here, all right? So wherever you are, it can, it can happen. So I'm gonna start with my buddy Brent. So Brent, as you were working, um, you wanna hand him the mic? There we go, you guys have to share. Um, so Brent, what type of communications did you find to be most effective when you were engaging your donor base specifically? Is that thing on? There you go. Yeah. We started with uh, in phone calls um, with our donor base. We didn't, there was no emails go out. Hey, big changes are coming. You know, we didn't do any of mass communication about it. And we just hopped on the phone. I hopped on the phone and just started talking to people. And it took a long time to get through everyone. Um, and some people were like, great, love it. Awesome. Like, like almost like, of course, it's fine. Whatever you guys decide to do. And others had really deep, good questions. And so every conversation looked different. Not every, but there was a lot of differences between them. But we knew that if we didn't make a personal um, connection with each donor and listen to their questions and help them feel like they were part of it, that we might lose them in the process. And so that's how we started. And eventually it went out to the world mass kind of deal with email and whatnot. But that was, we felt like was the key. 
just personal touch. How many how many phone calls would you estimate that you made uh, as, the, like as the CEO? 70 or something like 70. that. 70. Okay. Yeah. So these are were these like your core 70 donors or were these even like micro donors like the people that are doing like a $20 a month sponsorship yeah. as well? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't people who just have given money at some point. Right, right, right. But it was all of our regular donors. The amount didn't matter. Yeah. So if you gave $25 a month or you gave $6,000 a month. Right. We we're calling right. you. You have donors that give 6000 a month? Okay, I got to. All right. <laughs> Not a lot. With, I got to work with you. All right. So, um, <laughs> Ashley, would love to hear from you. So, um, how were you able to help donors and, and your board members? Even, you know, one of the things that you guys really focused on was helping them kind of see from the child's perspective. Mm -hmm. So how were you guys able to do that as it pertains to permanency from the child's perspective? And, and in what ways was that effective, you know, in kind of shifting the hearts and the minds of, of your stakeholders around the transition? Yeah, I, um, we have a little bit of a unique situation in that we didn't have any of the resources or research or the steps or phases of transition when we transitioned. We started in 2012 doing the transition. And we did have support. We had some um, amazing people that gave us advice and kind of helped us along the way. Um, but we, as a social worker, my main focus was practice level and what was best for kids. And I think I was also the fundraiser and the executive director. And so throughout the process, we communicated about what the issue was the most, the problem um, around trafficking. Our area has a high trafficking um Rate. Um, and it's very vulnerable for kids because we're right on a border town. Um, and so we always communicated when I when we did fundraising and when we communicated initially with our donors, the reason that people gave was not to fund a children's home. Um, they knew that that was part of our work, but we were also doing community engagement and we were also working with families. And so there was a little bit of a different perspective. And so we didn't really ask their permission or we just kind of made the transition more in the this is what's best for kids. We've now learned that this is what's best for children. And so this is what we're doing, but it didn't, it wasn't something that we felt we needed to just because of how we communicated when they initially started giving and when they got involved. And we, it seemed like everybody was great with that. They were, they realized we didn't know that it was possible before that we could empower families for kids. And once we learned that we were able to just communicate that this is a way that we found that we can place kids and families. And they were really excited about that. And so, um, and then the other part of that is just that we had kids that as we started to place in families, we could just tell the stories of their excitement to go home and the way that we saw them experience it. Um, one of the, one of the things that was really pivotal for one of our staff that he retold the story of just something that really even just convinced him even more is that they were having kind of a, farewell party celebration when a family was reunited we would do that with all of the kids and with the families would all come to that and one of the little one of the little boys that we hadn't found permanency for came up to him and he said see daniel when is it going to be my turn to go home and it just was heartbreaking to think that they kids have these narratives inside their heads and sometimes we think that because we've told them that we're going to be your forever family. You're in our family now. We're going to love you forever. That it would be heartbreaking for them to think that they might end up going home. But in reality, they've been thinking about their family the whole time. They never forgot about their family. They never lost those stories. And so the narrative inside their head is very different than what maybe we tell them. And it doesn't change because we tell them a different story. And so we've seen that. We worked with a... Um, 
in Tanzania were working to help a children's home transition. And just that was one of their questions. One of the directors said, you know, we've told them that we're going to be with them forever, that we're going to help them grow up. We're going to be, we're going to love them forever. We're their forever family. But most of these kids came in when they were about between three and seven. And so I think about what I help them understand is that if you think about your own kids and I think about my kids, they're six and eight. And if they ended up somehow, we lost all of our money, jobs, all of that. And we're just struggling so much. And they went in to live with a stranger. They were just taken to a home full of strangers it really wouldn't matter what those strangers told them. Like that story wouldn't connect with them at all. And it wouldn't be meaningful to them necessarily because all they would be thinking about was me and all that they would. So it wouldn't match the narrative that's inside of them. And so that was really helpful for them to understand like, oh, it's not just how I feel about them. They have the story and experience of their own mom that they are thinking about all the time. And so, yeah, yeah. no, that's really good. I mean, we sometimes will make those assumptions as far as, well, this is what my experience is like. I'm sure that it's reciprocated in the child when in reality, like Ashley is saying, they have all these other narratives that are going on. They know their history better than we do, you know, um, and that really makes an imprint, you know, and one of this, you know, kind of tagging along with that is this, you know, recognition that when we do have interactions with these kids, there is that narrative going. And one of the ways that a lot of our donor base is connecting with children is through short term missions. So I'd love to go to Spencer now. And, you know, Spencer, you know, when I first, you know, met you two or three years ago, you know, one of the things that you described was short term missions was was a significant part of your guys's revenue model when it came to engaging your donor base. That was that was a significant thing at Child Hope International when you came in and you came in with the with the um with the established uh, determination to actually work on a transition to family care. Um, and yet you guys had that short-term missions piece. So, so how did Child Hope International manage that transition as it pertained to short-term missions and, and, that, and those specific donors? Yeah, um, as, you, as you know, the, the major earthquake in Haiti brought in the influx of teams, uh, relief. It was crisis scenario. So um, really it helped sustain the mission of the organization um but with teams we we needed to we needed to disrupt this and it really started at the board level um the founders had been there they had left haiti and my wife and i were invited to take the leadership role on the ground we needed to know a few things about the roles and responsibility of the board the directorship we needed to see how that dynamic played out because when you have a crisis like that, the board wants to respond. And, and what they did is they, they would rally their church, grab teams, and a lot of the board was on the ground doing projects multiple times a year. And as you can imagine, if you're the director trying to make decisions and you have other leaders on the ground, it really made a confusing environment. So I had to address that first. Um, what are the, you know, the role of the board and, and where is the total authority on the ground? And when we secured that, we then took the next step with, um, with teams. How, how do we interact with teams? What does that look like? And, and um, there was some negotiation in terms of how many teams a year with the board they were fearful of losing uh our sustainability model uh you know teams would come leave and sponsor a kid 
And so um, when we started pursuing family-based care, I got the board to, to agree 100%. I got everybody's buy-in that um, my wife and I could start establishing a process to look for family. We didn't know. We knew that there was some family around the home, but we didn't we didn't know we were turning it to family-based care. We just, we just wanted to find the family, invite them back to the table and see what God would do. And so when we got that 100% buy-in, I think that really opened the door for us to assess teams and the impact teams had in that process. Um, so I was able to go back to the board and say, we need to dial back teams because it's disrupting a family relationship. And so uh, inevitably, we we stopped teams completely. And there were some loud voices in our donor base. Um, I won't I won't lie, there was there was a lot of upset people. They I think they felt like their history and their sacrifice and their effort that they put forth with the organization with the kids um, was going to be lost somehow. And so we had to, I had a lot of late nights talking to donors and um, listening to their, their frustration and their pain. But when I would open that door to, to really say, hey, this is going to give breath and life to a new relationship yeah. that hasn't been there for a while. And they, they, they responded pretty well. And, and then when the stories started happening, when we started finding family that we didn't know about or that was uh, dead on paper, like in, a, in an intake form, that was pretty powerful. Yeah. And people started, you know, the sharing, the dripping of the stories and, and that seemed to, to, to help. So, yeah. And, um, yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned the board there and coordinating with your board as it pertained to these short-term visitors, these, you know, donors and whatnot, you know, um, Brent, I would love to come to you. So uh, when we think about that board, you know, what worked for you to be able to successfully transition your board specifically? And, and, and you know, in what ways did, did that maybe, maybe was that different from what you described in terms of your donor base? So what did that look like for you working with your board? It was a bit interesting because we didn't really have a lot of language around it. We also didn't know like, okay, we're moving to a family-based model. I went yeah. to this conference and here's the things I learned. We were, we had, we had had enough kids go through our system and see failed transitioned into real life that we just said, this isn't working. Right. Like something is broken here. And, you know, at the time you're, let's get more money and more training and, and with, and it just continued to fail. So when we sat with the board and just started laying out the data, okay, let's look at Jackson. You all know Jackson. Let's, let's look at his, his path. And that's just started to resonate with the board. Now with donors, we had already, because one of the process things we did was bring, once we did family tracing and we found families, we would start to bring family to our site. And we did these family days. We did a couple of those. And then we started bringing the kids like for a weekend. And, you know, so it was kind of a, it was a long process to finally get them into their home permanently. So when, by the time I got to talking to the donors, we had already even started some of that process and had some of the stories. Well, with the board, we had nothing. You know, like I couldn't move forward without their buy-in at the beginning. And so probably the most powerful thing was what we're doing isn't working, right? <laughs> like we know we have to do something different. And 
just those human stories is what really got the board to buy in. And, and I think just the honesty of that, you know, sometimes we, we want to share all the good stuff and not share the hard stuff um, with our board and even our donors. But I think there's just something valuable about vulnerability and guess what? We're just trying to figure this out as we go. I heard someone this week talk about how nonprofit is, it's basically, it's a, it's just a experiment because if somebody had this figured out, the government would either be doing it or for-profit business would be doing it. And so as, as our nonprofit worlds, we're like, well, you guys haven't all figured it out. So I guess we'll give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And so we're just experimenting and trying new things and writing on the backs of others who've gone before us. And so, yeah, yeah that, that no, was a key good. thing. Thanks, for us. Brent. Yeah, and you know, going back to you, Spencer, you know, you you eventually got that full buy-in, but even in your instance, there there actually had been some changes in the board uh, for you guys at, at, at Child Hope. So surrounding that transition and your role as the director overseeing that change, you know, what was that experience like with the with with board members actually leaving and then kind of even getting new board members, uh, in the door, what was that experience like? And, and how would you encourage, you know, even other directors here, um, that might be in that same position where, where maybe some of the board members actually, you know, don't come around the, this, this new vision of kids and family. Yeah. Um, have critical conversations on the front end, go ahead and, and get everyone's buy-in. I got verbal buy-in from every board member, but they had all they had all been through crisis, through the earthquake, crisis management, emotional crisis. And um, the founders had to leave, um, you know, and it was, a, it was a very difficult time. So I got all verbal buy-in through critical conversations on the front end. We did that prior to even coming back to the organization because we needed to know if we could attempt to go in that direction. The one, the one person at the time who I was really unsure of, he was the most heavily invested in the work on the ground. Mm. He was coming multiple times a year. He was, uh, he rallied his church. Uh, he would talk to, to the kids. And so it was a lot of confusion, but, you know, thankfully God kind of worked on his heart and he said, you know what, it's not right for me to be in this right now. It's time for me to go. And, and it was a good, it was a good finish and we were able to fill the, fill the role. And the other board members honestly were ready for something new. They were ready to go in a better, you know, a healthier direction Yeah, yeah. and yeah. establishing that authority on the ground versus governance and, you know, yeah. strategy and right. was really helpful. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we think about those conversations with the board and engaging the donor base and some of these communications, you know, on your guys' sheet, and if you need to grab one from all this side of the room, I feel like I'm going to tip over. We all got on one left side of the room. Um, but if you guys need to grab some, you know, if, as you guys hear Ashley or Spencer or Brent, you know, share something and say, oh, I need that communication, you know, jot it down, um, jot it down. Or if you say, you know what, I'm actually also working in Uganda. I need to talk to Brent or Haiti, Spencer, like, or other people, right? Write that down, you know, don't leave here without, you know, grabbing some tool or some relationship that's going to help you get there. Because at the end of this, we want to see kids and family and we want to see healthy organizations, right? So, um, Ashley, I want to come to you again. 
So, you know, how has, now that you guys have made the shift, um, how has that actual shift in your model and your approach, you know, how has it been received by your donor base and your board members, you know, now, however many years afterwards? Yeah, um, we have... I think the privilege of even as you're talking, Spencer, I feel like because we're in Thailand, um, we don't have as much engagement on the ground. So we're not as accessible as Haiti is. Um, but we it's been really um, I think one of the things that's been most powerful is just the increase in impact that we've had. And so. We went from, in 2009, kind of when we launched our work, we were running children's homes and it started with one and then turned into four. And so we had about 45 kids that we were able to serve in those homes. And then we were working some in the community. So it was about 253 beneficiaries that first year. And then in 2021, we served 7,146 after having transition and now having not even a massive team, but just the amount of engagement that we're able to do on the ground and then the stories we're able to tell of impact is just so much greater than what you're limited by within the confines of an orphanage or a children's home. There's just not as much. And then the staff are always, if they're you're providing 24-7 care, that's just all consuming. And so you just don't have time to be engaged in so many other things. And so that's been a really beautiful part of it. Um, and I think really, even when we talked with our board and even sharing, I would honestly say that our board couldn't necessarily articulate all the reasons that we are no longer running children's homes, all the reasons why children's homes are not great for children, but we've really promoted the value of family. And I think even just sharing that aspect of it and really helping them understand, because that's so easy to connect to, because everybody knows that kids belong in families. We all get that. It's this idea and the romanticism of an orphanage that somehow, though, otherwise they'd be on the streets, of course. Because I think even when you say that 80 to 90% have a living parent, they don't. They still don't connect with that as much. And so um, with our increase in impact, we've just been able to share those stories and they're really, really powerful to be able to, for people to understand how much better kids are thriving and just the difference that we see in the way that they even engage. And I think we didn't have to really talk as much about the negative impact that have been on some of the older children because they were heavily invested from the very beginning. And I think that's really hard to know. I've invested in this for so many years and now you're saying that we've harmed all these kids because you told us to invest in this. And so I think that's part of it. And it's not necessarily being dishonest, but more sharing. We just know better now. And so we can help do a better um have better outcomes through this model. And so they were just recept really receptive to that and excited about the increase in impact. And how did you, Ashley, just to follow up, when it comes to that storytelling piece, you know, within our sector, when it comes to orphanages and so forth, we, we are very... Um, accustomed to seeing, you know, child sponsorships. This is my child in such and such country. This is their story. I get this update periodically and it creates this emotional connection with children. Um, and child sponsorships is probably a whole other conversation, but we have kind of like, this is the typical way that we hear about impact stories for these kids that are in children's homes. How did you guys, was there an evolution in kind of how you guys did your storytelling to your donor base, you know, when they're getting these reports back, here's this child in Thailand, here's this child in, in Myanmar. What, what, what did, was there, how was that evolution for you guys? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we really, I feel like one of the things that I 
continually tie back to is the risk of human trafficking because people connect really well. They already understand that trafficking is evil. It's harmful. But what most people don't connect, it's like people either care about orphanhood or they care about anti-trafficking and they don't realize how intertwined it all is and how the breakdown of family and a child outside of parental care is so much more at risk. And so helping them understand that even some of the stats we don't have great statistics internationally, but the statistics around kids in foster care in the States and the prevalence of human trafficking and how that's correlated, it helps people understand, oh, right, okay, being in a family is better protection. And so a lot of times we tell stories in that guise because they can connect with, I don't want kids to be vulnerable, but it overrides that idea that, well, they were getting a better education or they were getting better um, they weren't living in poverty because we've found that even in a family in poverty that is loving and protective is safer for a child in terms of human trafficking because because we've heard of so much abuse that happens in children's home and so much exploitation from the outside of kids being kind of sold off for services by the directors of the orphanage for funding. And so it's um, those kind of stories are really powerful, I yeah. think. Yeah, no, I imagine that that, that quite resonated with them. So um, I, I, again, the, the phone number is up there. I have a great question here that I'm going to get to in a second on short-term missions. Um, but just want to kind of go across the board here with the three of you. So when we talk about transition to family care, there are some resources out there. There's a new one from Better Care Network and um, that talk about these different phases, right? Um, but you know, I was talking with a colleague yesterday, you know, uh, Nicole, where she said they've seen, you know, small children's homes that transition in under a year. And then she said she saw one, they saw one that took 16 years. And I'm just like, well, then all the kids are just aging out at that point. I don't know, even know what that looks like. But there are these kind of different timelines when it comes to this. So um, would love to hear from each of you. So how long did it take for you to transition to family care? basically from the moment you decided to pursue it. So starting with the executive team, you know, uh, from the time you decided to pursue it to then the time you had full stakeholder buy-in, meaning donors are on board, board is on board, board is on board, that sounds funny. Uh, and then to the time where you actually completed the transition. So that's two, that's two time spans. What was that like for you, Spencer? Yeah, I think... Um as I said, that we, we got the buy-in up front coming back yeah. to the organization. So that right. accelerated, I would say, in the first year. Um, we had, uh, what were the three? It was it was board buy-in and So you basically came back to the organization yeah. and had the buy-in. So from that point yeah. then, how long until you guys basically more or less fully transitioned? I know you guys had a couple of kids that went into alternative family care towards the end. But right. what, how long did that take? Right. That span was a total of six years. Um, but we had to slowly drip information into our donor base of family-based care practice. Mm -hmm. And so um, Amanda's here, uh, my coworker, uh, my operations director, and we would every month just, just put out links to family or, you know, faith to action the Lumos report or other organizations that were doing neat things. We'd share statistics, but it was a long process. And when we stopped teams, I felt like that's when we accelerated our family-based care. So probably in that first year, we stopped teams and we saw the kids redevelop attachments just to the caregivers in the home mm -hmm. right away. And then 
that accelerated the, the work into the yeah, families. That's good. All right, Brent, same question. So from the time you as an executive to then getting kind of full stakeholder buy-in, how long did that take, would you say? Uh, probably about six months. About six months. And yeah. then from that point to fully transitioning. two years. Two years. Okay, so about two and a half years yeah. from conception of the idea to fully transitioning. How about you, Ashley? Uh, from having the idea to getting full stakeholder buy-in. Yeah, again, ours was early on, and so we didn't have kind of a framework for it. And so we had, because we had four homes, they each kind of had different focuses, and one was an infant home um, for babies that had been abandoned at birth, and that was the easiest to transition. And so we started in 2012 and sort of, again, didn't wait for stakeholder buy-in, just kind of started moving forward with practice and got the training had help on site. So we, um, ACCI, SFAC were helpful at the beginning, just even creating buy-in the why they weren't, they didn't stay for longer than a week at a time. Um, but they just helped everybody get the why understood and have the why really clear so that we could then work out the how. Um, and so we started 2012 and it took about five years until we closed the final home, but kind of two years to close the first two, it was a gradual process. And I think one of the biggest things was just that our team was terrified of making the wrong decisions. And so we actually were incredibly fortunate to have an on-site um, person that came and helped. And she would she was a social worker from Australia and we actually paid her a stipend to come and she would stay for six months. She stayed for six months one time and four months one time and really just knew how to ask good questions, did not do the transition for our staff, but just asked the right questions to help them consider all of the things that they needed to consider so that placement wasn't so scary. Because I think there was, because it is a high trafficking area, we were, our staff were terrified that what if we make the wrong decision and they end up in Bangkok or there's something that happens to the kids after they're placed back with family. And so she was really pivotal, but helped move it along. And sometimes when she wasn't there, it didn't progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were times where it would kind of slow down and stall. And then for our older kids, it just took longer to find placements just because of the nature of that. So yeah, no, that's good. Is important. You have... You have your donor base and your board, but you also have all the staff on the sure, ground who right. poured into this old model right. that you have to now yeah. move forward at the same time. All right. So that'll be the workshop next year, transitioning your staff. No, uh, that, no that's a fantastic point. Absolutely. So uh, going back to what Ashley said, she mentioned a couple other organizations, ACCI, their humanitarian outfit based out of Australia. They have some really good resources to kind of map this out. And then another one, as she mentioned, is SFAC, who are also close colleagues of ours. They're a social work outfit based out of the UK, and they have been involved in care reform in a number of different countries, providing technical expertise. If you guys have that... Uh, worksheet there in front of you, you'll notice on the journey home there on the bottom, that e-learning course, we have a full, it's a free course you could take with SFAC on uh, safeguarding. So how do we transition kids in a way safely, similar to what Ashley was just discussing there. So there are free resources out there. And along those lines, you guys are among the early adopters. So I heard Ashley say, I heard Brent say, we didn't really have a framework or a con like, like some, some concept that we were trying to live up to. Um, so when you did it, were there any resources? And even if there weren't, what resources have you seen recently, just really quick, um, resources that were helpful to you in doing that transition? Brent, you're holding the mic, so you go first. Yeah. Um, yeah at the beginning, I, I don't even know. Like We were just making it up as we right. went. Right. Um, so I can't even tell you. Um, just wisdom of 
people and friends and colleagues. Um, but faith to action has got some great stuff. That journey home curriculum is really great. Um, and it crosses cultural. I mean, our African colleagues loved it. Yeah. Uh, really, really good stuff. Good. Any resources for you, Spencer? Yeah. Um, that very first year I grabbed our whole board and we came to KFO. <laughs> and we went to one, there was a one breakout session on transitioning to family-based care. Mm -hmm. The rest was all about adoption or foster. And, yeah. and, uh, I think we sat with Delia pop and Tara and Ellie was there with faith to action. And, and they just went like this, we just printed a new manual <laughs> and they yeah. handed over this, the toolkit transitioning to family-based care toolkit that he mentioned. Uh, but it just lined out the steps. Yeah. Great. How about you, Ashley? Yeah, I would echo all of your recommendations. Faith to Action is phenomenal in One Million Home. Um, we, I think the Better Care Network, the phases of transition is really good for just overview of what is this going to look like? What might I need to consider? It won't all apply, but some of it does. And then just as a personal plug, we, Global Child Advocates and the Archibald Project, we partnered with them because um, they're phenomenal at storytelling if you need help telling your story. Um, but they we developed together this this um, three-part series of videos called Reimagine Orphan Care. Um, and we can give you a card that gives you the QR code for that. But it's basically just helping people understand the journey of where we started with great intentions with the orphanage and then how family needs to be a part of that story. And then really the community helps empower families. And so it's just something that we hope is helpful to other organizations, for board members, for donors, for churches to understand, hey, this is something we need to do because we know better. And so, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great, Ashley. And, you know, when we think about that sensitization process, the, the truth is sometimes their, uh, the understanding of these stakeholders is fairly thin. So you can sometimes just use introductory resources to kind of subvert that. And there are tools out there now. And I think reimagine orphan care is, is a great one. And so long as we're doing plugs, the next episode of think orphan will feature our friends at the Archibald project <laughs> and GCA talking about that. And the most recent was with Peter Mutabazi, who's also here was on think orphan just recently. So anyways, so long as we're doing plugs. So, um, I have a question here. I'm going to actually pose this to Brent. Because um, I, I really appreciate what you guys have done with missions trips. So in shifting teams uh, from missions trips, because um, you guys, well, yeah, I'll let you share for yourself. What were some actionable items that you kind of redirected teams to, uh, to honor their service, but also kind of redirect their efforts? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so our, our teams don't have a lot of contact with the kids that we work with. Um, the purpose of our teams is to come alongside of our staff. So we call it live the rhythm and you show up and, you know, we tell them, you know, well, we're not going to sing a dance for you. We're not going to like hit pause on everything. And you see, you know, a bunch of dancing and no, we're going to, we're going to just live our normal life and you're going to work one day in the hospital and you're going to work a day in security and you're going to work with our driver and you're going to work in the compound with a rake and you're just going to live the rhythm of what it looks like to be a staff member at Cherish Uganda. And at the end, you're going to have relationships with people on the ground. And we have found that that was great. We had a child psychologist come who's a friend of ours and she actually lived in Uganda for a couple of years. And she said, this is the first children's home that had been at, um, this is when we were at the end of our children's home time where the kids aren't all running up to the visitors. Um, and she says, just so you know, that means they're attached to their caregivers. And it's because we, really drew a f hard line 
Like you're not going to come and, you know, we just want to sit and hold and, and pray for those dear uh, Ugandan babies. Like, mm-hmm. no, don't you know, we have people who hold and pray for our dear Ugandan babies yeah. and they're called Ugandans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they, we don't need you to do that. But what we need you to do is understand what we do so you can partner with us in prayer and give us your money. That's what we need from you. you. So that's what we tell them. This is what we need. If you don't want to do what we need, that's fine, but you can't come. Right. And I would just say, you know, that that question really kind of does underscore how fundamentally short-term missions have linked in with this traditional model of orphan care. And we do have to tackle that, right? Um, not, I'm also reminded of another of our colleagues from the community of practice, Laura Horvath, who uh, they were operating a children's home in Sierra Leone. And when Ebola hit, there was no more tourism all of a sudden. And the kids started to attach with their African caregivers. And that was their impetus to say, you know what? maybe we need to change how we do this. And then they started their transition to family care. So it is it is interesting when you kind of think about all these different inputs, right? Whether that's an input of our revenue models around child sponsorship or how we tell stories, how we isolate the children or our inputs of short-term missions. All of these are having a very dramatic effect on the ecology of that child and therefore how they develop into, a, into, a, into an adult. So we really need to kind of be thinking Again, going back to Ashley's first point around what is that child feeling? What is their narrative like? And how are they feeling welcomed, loved, nurtured so that they can become, you know, who God wants them to be? And ultimately, that's going to be best served within an indigenous family of their origin and and with kinship if possible. But if not, then being adopted into you know, hopefully a family that's close to their own culture. So those are, those are the ideals as much as possible. Um, I want to go back to the fundraising and I have a question here that also came in on text, um, that relates to this, but before I do that, I'm just going to ask, so you guys are all executive directors, CEOs, you guys are, um, responsible to make sure that you guys have enough revenue for both your teams in your, in your field country, as well as, um, here in the U S um, and that's not an easy job. So how many of you, or we'll just go down the line, um, and Brent, again, you're holding the mic, so I'm going to you first, buddy. Um, did you lose money during your transition to family care? If you, if you were to talk about either losing donors or a net gain or net loss, what did it look like for Cherish Uganda? Yeah, we didn't lose any. Zero. You lost no donors. No, that's okay. such a big fear. It for, is a huge and it was a fear for us, but we actually lost. No. Okay. Spencer? Yeah. Um, communication's key. We did lose some, but not a lot. So. Yeah. Was it net positive, net negative, initially say, negative I say, maybe? I would say net positive okay. overall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ashley? Yeah. Um, we didn't lose any donors and we stayed somewhat I mean our if you looked at the last 10 years it's like this and then it's like this Uh, since 2015 2018 we started um growing exponentially because we had more exciting things to talk about if that makes sense because we launched a social enterprise because we had work outside of just raising a child 24 7 and I think if that was the best model, that would be amazing to be steady and consistent. But now that we've learned that it's not, there's so much more that we're now engaged in that's exciting that people can connect to more easily than 
we're running children's homes because these kids need us and we're the rescuers and we're the ones that are doing all the things. We get to celebrate all of the local heroes that we have and all the ways that they're innovating new ideas because they're able to be creative and they're not just focused on meeting survival of these kids. Um, yeah. So yeah, I no, feel like really we've, we've you, definitely and, grown. And you, Ashley, essentially spoke to this other question and I don't know if uh, Brent or Spencer had anything to add, but has this shift had an impact on yours and your board's ability to fundraise? Your, your answer was essentially you saw an increase as time went on and you guys diversified the types of programs that you were doing. The, uh, just so you guys are aware, Global Child Advocates also has a great social uh, enterprise um, that that they were able to partner with. What was the, what was the, there was like a boutique or like a well-known oh, Noonday noon Collective. That's right. So they, I think th there's resources over here. Grab that as well. My wife wears their earrings. I will gladly plug uh, what they do at Sojourn Your Studio. Your earrings are not from them? No, I got these on Amazon. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, you guys just start making plugs for men. No. Um, how about for you, Brent? Uh, has the shift had an how has it had an impact on yours and your board's ability to fundraise effectively? Yeah, it's it's increased that because I think once people look at the fact that we had you know eighty five kids in a home that we cared for, but now we are in, investing into eighty five families. Like that just massively increases our our ability to minister to more people and have greater influence. And so, yeah, people get on board with that. Yeah, for sure. No, that's really good. Um, we we have less than 10 minutes here, but we do still have a little bit of time. Um, did anybody, do we have any kind of questions just kind of from the floor? Um, and even if we kind of divert at all from specifically looking at the board and the donors, these very kind of more detached, but yet important stakeholders. Um, here we have three prime examples of what it looks like to transition to family care. Do we have any kind of other, other just kind of questions from the floor before we uh, start to wrap up and conclude? Yeah, right here. Here, I'm gonna, cause they're recording this, I gotta hand you the mic. Uh, tell us your name and uh, also tell us kind of where you're coming from. I'm Mark Matthews. I have a nonprofit called Restored Souls Foundation. We send families on respite vacations for free. Uh, we've been working with kids for 12 years. Um, I was adopted many years ago. So basically on your fundraising and your um, donors, how often do you give them like, is it quarterly, like an update? Hey, this is where we're at. This is where we need to go with our funds. Hey, we need more on a, a larger level, I guess. Yeah. So what, what do those intervals look like as you guys are communicating with your donor base, especially given kind of how you guys have diversified your programs? Yeah, for us, we're, we're doing a monthly newsletter to our to our primary donor base. And then we have quarterly uh, we've done quarterly updates before that are like Zoom updates through the COVID time frame. Um, uh, you know, we're engaging social media weekly. Uh, linking to partners that we we really like what they're doing and and try to partner that way and uh, for the movement and for the works. Yeah, that's good. Brent, how about you guys? Yeah, the weekly multiple social media updates and then um, quarterly we send out a newsletter and then our top thirty donors. I make a personal like contact coffee lunch something. Yeah. Um, just to keep them engaged. That's really good. And, and and on that note, you guys will see Brent shared some great uh, expertise in that episode you guys see there on the sheet. How about you, Ashley? What does that look like for you guys? Yeah, ours is a little bit. Um, so we send out a monthly update and 
tell about stories and all of that. This is just kind of how it's evolved. We don't ask a lot during the year, kind of during giving season. We have a, maybe, well, um, our board really feels like you make some major asks at the end of the year during giving season. We have a gala, we have events, and we do ask more, I think, during that season in our emails. But predominantly, we just share stories of impact and thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for, and even people that haven't donated that are on that list, we thank them for being reading, even opening our emails, that they would be a part of what we're doing because eventually they get excited about it. So I feel like most of our fundraising happens relationally, honestly, just through us building relationship, maintaining those, connecting, caring about their families, praying for them. It's it's much more that than um, yeah. any kind of online. Yeah, any online marketing and whatnot. Okay, other, other questions, other questions kind of from the floor. Anything concerning transition or working with your donor base, working with the board? Got a, yeah, Hazel. Ah, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. Hazel, thank you. Sorry, I can uh, try to explain uh, good because I, I don't speak a lot of English, but I'm wondering if you need to uh, train your technical teams and increase your technical teams, you too, for the care families and kids at the same time, or you uh, have the same team doing everything? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. So, so even with the staff, the and, and even as it could pertain to your board and your directors, what does that look like to actually get people ready for that, especially those that are performing, uh, you know, those technical skills? Uh, Ashley, you got the mic, so go. Yeah, so we we did have some on-site training for just social work practice, for case management, for expanding what family reintegration looks like. I'm a social worker, so I feel very strongly about there being good practice like that. A lot of our staff are trained in those practices that are not social workers. So a lot of our, they I would consider their parasocial workers. And locally, there are other organizations. So there's IRC, there's IOM, there's other organizations that we've also sent them to training locally so they can get kind of the more contextualized skills. So yeah, it was definitely, we didn't necessarily have to hire out new people. We just had to make sure all of our staff that were doing those practices knew what they were doing. Yeah. Spencer, Brent, anything? No, nothing new, same. Yeah, same that's good. We, I mean, it, it is it is critical getting those training because again, th these are entirely new skill sets. You can't just assume that because somebody was, you know, maybe very gifted at providing care in a residential type of facility that now they know how to do family tracing and family assessments and, you know, child assessments and all of these kind of really important work. So, so that training piece is really big. Um, so thank you. Yeah. I will, Ashley, I will Spencer, just, what would you add? Yeah. I'll just say on that. We, we had to actually create a whole new program initially so that we could target new income for the budget. Like we, we got to raise 15,000. We're going to hire two social workers, a psychologist, and let's start with that. And we've tried to grow that each year. And so mm -hmm. as kids go home, our, our technical staff is kind of growing and our, and our other staff, nannies and stuff are, are slowly, we're, we're yeah. transitioning out. So right. yeah, that's really good. That's good insight. Any other questions? We got just a couple more minutes. Yeah, Nick. Hold on one sec. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about this, Ashley, but not, and I'm assuming with all of you guys, not every kid or child fits into a situation where they just go home easily and it works out perfectly. So do you communicate that nuance to your donors and board, or do you kind of just work on that internally? 
It's a really good question. Who wants to tackle that one, Brent? Uh, so yes, we did. Um, and we told them up front, you know, we know we're going to find some, some, there's going to be some amazing, and it has been like where family's like, what? This kid is alive and like open arms. And then we also knew we were going to find some families like, no, I don't want that kid. Like a reason I dumped that kid at the hospital is because I don't want them here. Um, and so we knew we would confront those situations. And so we, we've been honest with our people around that. Um, you know, in the end, we had five kids we could not place and they are in foster care in Uganda, which is great. Um, and we also, we have, we have some situations that are still really hard, really hard. These kids are with hard families, hard situations, and our social workers are there a lot. And we let, I mean, we don't post that on social media. Hey, this one, this one's a terrible one, everybody. Um, but we're real open with when we have those face-to-face -face meetings and let them know that there's the good, the bad, and the ugly in life everywhere. And it's the same. We wish they were all like glowing, but they're not. And we tell them up front, we know we're going to encounter some tough ones. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Brent. They are. They are. I mean, the number one question you get is, well, what if they go back into a bad family? What are you going to do about it? You know, and like, well, every family is different. We're going to walk with that family. We have well, of all the kids of 80, well, there's been about 125 children that we've put back into families. There's only one that we've did a rescue and pulled out mm -hmm. only one. Um, and yeah, yeah well, we're all honest about that with people. No, that's really and good. They, and they do own it. Yeah, go Ashley. Um, we just invited them even for the kids that we had a few kids that we weren't able to place, um, initially and invited people to pray with us. So I think even when we talked about it, we talked about, we have a couple kids left that we haven't found permanency for, please pray with us for them. Um, and I feel like that is really helpful because then even in our annual report, we were able to, Julie Walton does all of our writing. If you read any of our stuff, cause she does it beautifully, but talked about how we did have a breakdown of one of our placements, but then he was able to be placed later on into his dream family and how beautiful that was for him and that story and an answer prayer. So I think inviting them into you're with us, come join all of it with us. Yeah. yeah. No, that's so good. So, um, as we kind of draw to it, Oh, Risa. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's a great point, Risa. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, that's so good. So, so hopefully, you know, as we kind of wrap this up and head to our next workshops, hopefully what you're hearing is that it's possible, right? And when you hear uh, from leaders like this that have actually done the hard work of transitioning and they say it was a net positive on our donor base, or we were able to get the right board members in there, or we were able to transition our board members, or even we had a couple questions here towards the end about staff and technical training and this is possible. This is possible. And there are, this isn't 2012, right? This is 2022. And there's actually more resources for this type of work. So I would just, again, encourage you guys, um, if you want to see the research, you do have those two uh, resources from CAFO that I shared. Um, there's stuff at Faith to Action's website, who are friends, ACCI, um, our own platforms, which you have there. There are ways to get kids home. And you guys can bring your board and your donors along for the journey. So uh, thank you guys for coming. Uh, it was great to see you guys. And uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, please grab some resources and stuff on your way out as well. Thank you. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.